Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as he calls us to take on his yoke and experience true discipleship. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and he touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone that what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but they have done to him everything they wished. And in the same way, the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. And when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and he knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and he's suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. And then the disciples came to Jesus in private and they asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it'll move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. And after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. And when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Well, then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. 
but so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish that you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it, give it to them for my tax and for yours. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. Well, you know, several years ago, uh, my wife and I uh, were very blessed with the opportunity to go to New Zealand, where I was doing some ministry teaching. And it is truly a magical place of beauty. Whether you realize it or not, you've actually seen some images of New Zealand, because on the South Island of New Zealand is where they filmed a lot of the Lord of the Rings movies. You may have seen some of those shots. Well, Tracy and I spent several days on the smaller North Island, driving around and exploring, and there were constant moments of wonder. We got to visit Hobbiton, which is where they filmed on the North Island, the, all the, the little the Hobbiton town um, scenes from Lord of the Rings. We got to go to this hot springs little village called Rotorua. We got to go up into Matakana, the northern uh, country, where these constant views and winding hills of the Pacific Ocean. We got to explore the private grounds of this famous sculptor, including his house that he built with moving walls. And Particularly, I remember um, an impromptu midnight swimming in the warm January ocean down there south of the equator um, with all these phosphorus plankton that were there at that time of the year. And so compared to all the places we've traveled, New Zealand was particularly full. It was like the super concentrated moments or glimpses of glory. What about you? I'm sure if we took a few minutes, you could think of some moments, some places, some experiences that you had that are similar. And these glimpses of glory that we have are these experiences where you get so caught up with something beautiful and amazing that you actually, for a brief moment in your life, become free from yourself, free from your self-consciousness, free from your normal anxieties and burdens and self-consumption. Those are special moments. I know you've had some, large or small. And you don't have to travel to foreign lands to experience them. Maybe you've experienced these glimpses of glory, a perfect evening with old friends around a long dinner. Or maybe coming around the bend of a steep hike in the forested Appalachians and all of a sudden it opens up to to a range of distant mountains and waterfalls. Or maybe it's just in the midst of reading a great story. You're getting to the very end of some amazing story like Harry Potter or whatever, Lord of the Rings or whatever it is. Or maybe it's the the perfect drive on the 18th hole, right? Or maybe your glory moment for a few of in this room is what was mentioned to me by a dear friend this week, the moment he first held his first grandson. Those moments that God gives us, big and small, are glimpses of glory. They are morsels of something more. Arrows that that show that we're made, that shoot beyond the mundane. Moments where our soul is actually free. But here's the thing about these divinely appointed glimpses of glory, is that they never last. The regular, mundane, 99% of the rest of life still must be lived and experienced. These glimpses of glory are just that, they're glimpses. And the rest of our lives is different. You have lonely dinners without friends 
or chaotic meals with one kid screaming, one hiding under the table, and two crying because you just yelled at them to eat their broccoli, right? Disappointing vacations with car breakdowns and relational strife and bad weather. Death and loss. Loved ones die, friends move across the country, children are estranged. And I think you know what I mean. These God-given glimpses of glory are meaningful and they're a deeply significant part of what it means to be human. But try as as we might, we can never sustain them. In fact, if you try to live a life where you're just sustaining all these moments of excitement through drugs or promiscuity or irresponsibility, you'll end up worse and less happy than before. Now, the reason I'm talking about these glimpses of glory here this morning with you is because as we're continuing in the Gospel of Matthew, we have come to one of the most remarkable and unique stories of the Gospels, what we call the transfiguration. It's truly a glimpse of glory, but it's not all that happens in Matthew 17, as we just heard. The stories we're going to look at today include this glimpse of glory, but they also include a lot of regular, mundane, broken life. And we need the Bible and we read the Bible because in it, we hear from God. And I do believe God has something to say to you and to me this morning. So if you have a Bible, that's great. If you can pull it up on your phone, that's great. Scott read it for us. It'd be great if you have it in front of you. If not, that's okay too. Just listen. But here in chapter 17 in Matthew, we are almost two thirds of the way through Matthew's wonderful account of Jesus' life and teachings. And last week in chapter 16, we hit one of the highlight moments. And I, you know, Pastor Kevin said this, I feel this, every, every passage we're like, this is the highlight. And it's hard not to feel that way about Matthew. It's such a great book. But chapter 16 last week was one of the real highlights in the moment because finally the disciples understand who Jesus really is. Mary called Jesus with his disciples and he finally asked them, who do you guys think I am? And good old Peter the leader of this ragtag band of disciples says it correctly. You can see in 16, 16, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to this with joy. Yes, Peter, you're right. God has called you to understand this. God has revealed this truth to you. And it's true for you as well today, if you believe that about Jesus. So hooray, we could say in chapter 16, the disciples have finally understood they got it. And in fact, if you didn't know the rest of the story, you could think this is the end of the gospel story. It all worked up to this point. Now everyone can finally understand who Jesus is and we can all live happily ever after. And I can imagine in chapter 16, the events that were happening, the disciples were probably thrilled when when Jesus said that to them. Now we've got it. High fives all the way around, pats on the back, kosher cigars passed around. Let's pull up camp chairs and start planning our ruling of the world. This is going to be amazing. And then Jesus ruins the party. If you were here last week, or if you know Matthew 16, you can look there. What happens is, in Matthew 16, 21, Jesus immediately tells them the opposite of what they were just thinking, that they are headed to Jerusalem, not to take over and rule the world, but for Jesus to be arrested, tortured, mocked, and hung to bleed and suffocate on a cross. And if you look back at chapter 16, you could see that Peter, again, he's shocked by this, as as we should be as well. He pulls Jesus aside and tries to correct him. Whoa, whoa, Jesus, this is not the strategic plan. And instead of being affirmed, Jesus is rebuked by Peter and all disciples because we need to understand that the way of 
of glory is actually the way of the cross. And so chapter 16, we saw last week, ends with Jesus exhorting his disciples to follow his example, to take up their own crosses, to embrace suffering and death, especially death of our false selves, as the only means to find true life. And then if you look at verse 28, Jesus says this crazy thing. Truly, I tell you, some of you standing here will not taste death, some of them, before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's a weird statement. And what he means by it is chapter 17. So if you look there in chapter 17, again, Scott read this for us. I encourage you to follow along. Here's what Jesus means by some standing will not see and not taste death before they see the Son of Man in his glory. Here's what happened. So six days after the events of chapter 16, Matthew tells us this great moment, Jesus takes three of the lead disciples, Peter, James, and John, to hike up this old mountain of Israel to pray. The other nine disciples stay back to kind of do crowd control and to be there with the, because there's thousands of people following Jesus everywhere he goes. So the nine stay down at the bottom of the hills. Jesus and Peter, James, and John go up to pray. And we know this is something Jesus did regularly. Like he went off privately often all night long to pray and fast and seek, and seek the Father. But this night turned out to be not a normal prayer retreat. Once they got up into the mountains, away from the crowds, something crazy happens. All of a sudden, you can see in the story, Peter, James, and John see a radiating light in the midst of the pitch black darkness of the mountainside. And it turns out the light is coming from Jesus himself. And this event is what we call the transfiguration. It's been called that for a long time. Now, I know that's an odd word. And, and again, if you grew up in the Harry Potter era, of just re- the only probably association you have, you have with transfiguration is Professor McGonagall's transfiguration classes at Hogwarts, where you can like learn a spell to turn a rat into a mouse or whatever it is. That's not the sense of transfiguration here as if Jesus becomes something different. It's instead the kind of transfiguration that means that his appearance is transfigured, meaning that it is revealed who he truly is. That instead of just appearing to them as, the, as he had as a first century Mediterranean Jewish man, instead the veil is pulled back and they see him in all his glory for who he is. This is the Clark Kent normal looking reporter with glasses turns out to really be Superman from another planet. This is this moment. He's not someone different, but it's a revelation. The transfiguration is a revelation of what is true about Jesus. It's crazy. It's amazing. It's glorious. Now I said that this is unexpected, but actually about 1400 years earlier than this story, something similar had actually happened before. Similar, but different. That is, this mountaintop, people glowing kind of thing had happened before. You may recall, and maybe this afternoon you can go back and look, in Exodus chapter 24, where Moses and, his, and three of his disciples, and then ultimately Joshua, went up on a mountain, God appeared to Moses in a cloud, and after six days, God spoke to Moses from the cloud. And the result was, that when Moses came back down from that mountaintop experience, his face 
shone with the glory of the Lord so much so that they had to put a veil over it. Everybody was freaked out. Now, none of those connections, the connections between that story and this story, they're not an accident. They're not a mere coincidence. And any Jewish person reading this story from Matthew 17 or any Christian who knows their Old Testament would immediately see the connection. And if we miss it, Matthew makes it very clear because it turns out it wasn't just that Jesus was radiating glory. There were actually two people there with him as well, Matthew tells us, Moses and Elijah who together represent the two key realities of the Old Testament, Moses, the giver of the law, Elijah, the great prophet, the law and the prophets. And we could easily spend hours together exploring the beauty of this and all the connections between them. But for our time and space, I just want to point out to you that Matthew not only wants us to think of Exodus, but he also wants us to see the difference that is going on here. And particularly that Jesus is now culminating, bringing to an end the the whole story of God's work in the world, the new exodus, rescuing us from bondage, giving us instructions, and that Jesus is not just another Moses and not just another Elijah or Elisha prophet who's receiving glory from God, that Matthew tells us Jesus himself is the radiating reality of the glory of God. It's not that he's just receiving this glory. He himself is God, the son, who is radiating glory and Moses and Elijah are attending to him. Let's get back to the story and see what happens. So there they are. They're on this mountain. They're startled by this bright light. Moses and Elijah are there talking with Jesus and good old Peter, who you have to love, always wholehearted. He's a born leader. He calls out with a suggestion. You you can see there, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, we don't know exactly what Peter was thinking, and I think probably he didn't know what he was thinking either. But I think we can assume that Peter probably believes, understandably, that this is the end. After all, chapter 16, they finally understand who Jesus is. They're a little confused by what he says about suffering. But now they go up on this mountain. Moses and Elijah are there. The glory of Lord, the Lord is there. There's a cloud, etc. And he must be thinking, we've arrived. We finally figured out who Jesus is, the Christ, the son of the living God. Now the end has come. We're on this mountain. We'll build three tabernacles. This will be the new holy place. All the peoples of the world will come to this place. We have arrived. But then Peter's great idea isn't what happens. All of a sudden, while Peter is still speaking, it says, verse five tells us that a bright cloud came over them and God the Father speaks from the cloud, even as he did to Moses and even as he did at Jesus' baptism, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. Just try to imagine yourself in this situation. Very intense. Peter, James, and John's response is not, okay, cool. But exactly is exactly what our response would be if we were up on the mountain in the middle of the night, three shining people appear. I know you're just thinking UFOs. That's not what they would be thinking. A bright cloud arrives and we hear this booming voice from God coming out of it. Their response is what you and I would feel, absolute terror. And so they fall on their faces in terror. But then look at the beautiful thing Jesus does. 
He doesn't hover in the air and hold out his arms and say, be afraid, be very afraid, or are you not entertained, or anything else he might say. Instead, if you look at verses seven and eight, he comes to them, he puts his hand on them, and he says, don't be afraid. And they lift up their eyes, and they see no one but Jesus. So as quickly as this transfiguration happened, it was over. The glory was glimpsed. Moses and Elijah have appeared, but now Jesus is left alone with them, treating his disciples as friends with compassion and care. This is an amazing story. And it really is the high point of Matthew 17. And I could easily spend the whole sermon just on this, It is literally a mountaintop experience. That's why we call these mountaintop experiences. But it's not the end of the story. The remainder of Matthew 17 is not actually on the mountain, but on the rough plain, the regular ground of real life. So there's a lot here. I'm going to go through it quickly. Let's see what else happens to make sense of this. If you look at verses 9 to 13, what happens next? Sometime the next morning, probably, Jesus, Peter, James, and John are coming back down the mountainside to join everyone else. You can imagine the joy, the bounce in their steps, the wonder still hanging in the air and in their hearts about what they experienced, the excitement of telling the rest of the disciples to show Philip and Bartholomew and Thaddeus and Judas the selfie that Peter took with Moses or whatever it is. This is amazing, right? But then Jesus tells them strongly in verse nine that they can't tell anyone else what happened until Jesus is raised from the dead. Why? Well, we'll see in a minute. Come on, Jesus. And it's actually hard for me to imagine that they actually obey Jesus in this, right? I mean, could you really not tell anybody what happened? But we don't know if they did or not. So they asked Jesus a theological question. They say, okay, what's the deal with the Jewish teaching that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Jesus answers them that Elijah really has come. It was John the Baptist, not reincarnated, but God has sent Elijah. Okay, so a little disappointing, but it's fine. They can't tell anybody. They get this theological question answered. But then in verse 14, as they're coming down the mountain, real life really hits them. They get down to the bottom of the mountain. The other nine disciples are there. There's thousands of people there that have been following Jesus. And rather than coming down the mountain into this big parade where everyone says, hooray, you're back. Tell us about your awesome adventures. I mean, you know this. Like, let's say you go on a vacation or you go somewhere. I've had this, I travel a lot. I've had this, it never fails. Like I get off the airplane and I'm driving home and I think I've had all these experiences. How do you communicate those to somebody else, right? There's no way. There's no way you can, and you can imagine they're, they're, they're coming down the mountain all full of their heads and hearts full of this stuff. And the response they get is not, welcome back. Let's give foot rubs and tell us all about it. Not at all. Rather, they come back to a scene of chaos and frustration. Be like the parents coming home from a relaxing date to find kids fighting and the kitchen overflowing. And immediately, a desperate man comes up to Jesus, kneels before him like so many thousands of others had, begging Jesus to heal his epileptic and suffering son. But this time, there's an edge to this man's request. Look at verse 16. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. (laughs) Back to reality. 
This is not the moment of the, of the glory on the mountain, back to reality. And Jesus himself is a little exasperated. If you look at verses 17 and 18, he says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? I don't think he's so much directing this to the father himself because he, with compassion, he heals the man's son, but he's speaking to his disciples. And I think more broadly, how long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. And then when Jesus is alone with his disciples, they come to him and say, why couldn't we cast out this demon? Probably hoping for some like exorcism pro tip and look at verses 19 and 20. He says, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So even despite all that the disciples have seen and heard from Jesus, they still continue to struggle to have faith, to really believe that God is at work through Jesus and can work through them. Such a stark contrast to the mountain of Jesus' transfiguration. And there's a, we don't usually do this, but I I actually, Pastor Kevin showed this cool Jesus breaking the cross. I have a painting for you today as well. I don't know if you could see it very well. It's from the early 16th century. I think this is a rare painting that really shows the combination of Jesus' transfiguration. You can see he's with Moses and Elijah and Peter, James, and John on top. This is by Raphael. And then you see this, the light of that, and then the dark the, the juxtaposition of that story with coming back down to the earth and seeing, coming back down to the mountain, seeing the frustration, people are all looking down and frustrated with each other. This is a back to real life moment. And that continues then in verses 22 to 23. They come into Galilee and Jesus says to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life and the disciples were filled with grief. So once again, we get the same thing we heard in chapter 16, and this is why Jesus told them, don't tell anyone, because the reality is you and I want this constant moments of glory, but instead the reality is that Jesus comes to suffer and to die and to say, we must take up our cross as well, the back to reality moment. And the result is the disciples are greatly distressed. And then there's one more story at the end. It's this odd little story about the drachma of fish, the two drachma in the, in the, the mouth of the fish. And again, we could talk about this story for more time than we have. The basic idea of it is that Jesus is replacing the obligations of the temple, the temple tax with himself. But what I want to point out to you particularly is it's another example of the mundane reality of life. It's, it's a beautiful little story where the, these people come to challenge Jesus' and disciples and they come to Peter and say, does your teacher pay the tax? And Peter doesn't know the answer to that. And this bumbling way he says, yes, 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 we pay it. And then when he's alone with Jesus, Jesus says to him, what do you think, Peter? <laughs> and, he, and he sort of busts him on it, not in a mean way, but in a very sort of embarrassing way for Peter that he had kind of blustered through. It's more of the mundane frustration and challenging even embarrassment of life. So here's the question, friends. What does this all mean? What in the world do these stories from 2,000 years ago, this hodgepodge of stories, how in the world do they affect our lives? Well, 
There are some beautiful theological truths that we should understand. I mentioned one of them briefly before, that that when Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah, a big point of the part of this is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole story of Israel. All that God has been doing in the work of the in, in the world has now come to its greatest reality in Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God radiating God's glory throughout the world. When you see Jesus, you see the glory of God in its fullness. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about the difference between Jesus and Moses here, that when Moses came down, again, he had received this glory and he had to veil it. But now we who understand Jesus as the actual radiance of God, we boldly proclaim this in the world. We do not veil the message. We boldly proclaim that Jesus is the fulfillment. That's a beautiful truth to take away from this text. You can also think about how Peter himself talked about this text later. In 2 Peter, the letter we call 2 Peter in chapter 1, he refers to what happened in Matthew 17. He says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven. We were with him on the sacred mountain. That's the exact story that we just read. And how does Peter apply this? He applies it by saying, Because Jesus is God's power and glory, since we are united with him, we too now have all we need to live powerful, godly lives. That's how Peter applies this text. It's a great way to apply it, that we too tap into the resurrection power of Jesus. Those are all great. As I look at Matthew 17 and look at all the stories, there's something else finally, something deeply personal and encouraging that I feel like God wants us to see today and to take to heart, and it's this. I think you see in Matthew 17, God's invitation to you and me to faith and to wonder. God's invitation to you and me to faith and to wonder. And here's what I mean. When we take all these stories from Matthew 17 together, I think we feel in our bones the contrast, the the frustration, the reality of the difference between this glimpse of glory, this mountaintop experience, literally, and the rest of our lives, this juxtaposition of the glory and the mundane. That is the human experience. And you see, when we experience these high moments, when, whether they're in nature or in friendships or moments when we've seen God clearly in worship and prayer and scripture and suffering, when we experience these moments of glory and then we return to real life with its disappointments and its frustrations and its failures and it's just its mundaneness, it's easy to lose hope. It's easy to give up, to become cynical, to become skeptical, to lose faith. I understand that. That's a real and normal human emotion. The exciting romantic relationship turns into learning to work through disappointments and conflicts. The joy of a new house or job or school turns into the mundane of of traffic and leaky roofs. The glory of Sunday morning worship and teaching fades by Sunday afternoon with conflicts and disappointments and boredom even. That's real life. But here is God's invitation to faith 
and to wonder that even though most of our lives do not consist of these mountaintop experiences, God does give us these glimpses of glory to remind us that he is real, that he is still at work, even in the midst of our pain, our confusion, our suffering, our loss, our frustration. And God is inviting us to continue to have faith and to wonder, to wonder about his beauty and goodness, even in the 99% of the mundaneness of our lives. We see this in Jesus' exhortation to have faith, even if it's just mustard side seed faith that we believe that, that we can believe and therefore move mountains. And so he gives us mountaintop experiences so that when we are living our lives on the rough plains and valleys of life, we can remember his mountain moving ability. You might think, well, it's easy for Peter, James, and John because they got to see Jesus in all his glory, but the other nine did not. And there, this message was for them as well. And even more, even more, remember what Jesus said. We had this read earlier, what Jesus said to Thomas after his resurrection. Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed, but blessed or happy are those who have not seen, that's you and me, and have yet believed. Friends, we are made for glory. The reason you long for these glimpses of glory is that we are made for them. We love glory. And God's whole creation is so glorious in people and in nature that glimpses of his glory keep spilling out and cracking through, even despite all the brokenness and darkness of the world. We've all had those rocks crying out moments, whether it's in New Zealand or with friends or when holding a child or in worship with God's people. And those glimpses of glory come and go, but that is okay. Embrace them, receive them as gifts to remind you of God's reality, to have faith in him, to continue to believe and wonder even as we wander. So to say it clearly again, no matter where you are today and whatever you're experiencing today, maybe you're full of joy, maybe you're full of pain, confusion, loss, fear, hope, God is inviting me, he's inviting you to believe, to have faith, to wonder, to catch a glimpse of his glory and goodness so that it might sustain you even in the midst of difficulties and mundaneness. I'm particularly burdened for younger people this morning in this, teenagers, maybe people in their 20s, maybe beyond, especially in the United States and where we have so much fun stuff and so many ways that we can constantly be entertained, all of us, it's not just for younger people. We come to expect that our life is just one exciting moment after another. But if you live that way and you seek a life that way, younger people or anyone, any age, it will distort your heart. Because most of life does not consist of those glory moments. They're great, but most of life consists of real life. That's okay. That's okay. Matthew 17, I think, is a snapshot of our real lives. Moments of both seeing God clearly, plus not so much. And that's okay. This has been the experience of God's people throughout history. This is what it means to have faith. So how do you do this? Will you give yourself over to moments of glory 
and you give thanks and remembrance. You give yourself over. When you have those moments of glory, give yourself over to them. That is a gift. And then you give thanks and remembrance. So get outside, see the glory of God's creation. Spend time with good friends and enjoy life together. Read Holy Scripture and ask God to speak to you. Worship God in song and don't hold back. When you're worshiping here, don't hold back. Just give yourself to, to worshiping God. And then after these things, give thanks to God. Because when we remember these moments of glory, that actually deepens them. In fact, this is something that's been well recognized by humans forever and psychologists as well, that actually the memory of something is often better than the actual event itself. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? So give yourself over to the gifts that God has given you of moments of glory and then give thanks to God for them. Because in the giving thanks, you are remembering and deepening the reality of who God is, even in the midst of the mundaneness of life. And as we come to the table, you think of what Jesus said, that this is a remembrance. Because in the taking of this, there was an event that happened. On the night that he was betrayed, he broke bread and he gave it to his disciples. And then he invites you and me now, 2,000 years later, to partake in this bread and this wine so that we can remember this moment of glory. So that in the midst of all that you're going through, God is real and he invites you to faith and to wonder. So I'm going to pray. Musicians are going to come forward. I encourage you to get out your little communion thing if you have it, or if not, we probably have some out there still. And as I pray and as we sing a couple more songs to conclude, I'd invite you to remember this moment of glory in Jesus' death and his resurrection and his transfiguration that he might sustain you. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.